I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to talk to Rob, which is just the easiest job in the world. And, and as you all have noticed, uh, this, this brochure is just so, it's like gold. It's thin, it's small, but it's very heavy. It's just full of good stuff. And, and uh, I, it's, it's just a thrilling-looking season. And I'm, I have to say, I'm going to be coming down a few times to see things. Tell me, uh, Rob, uh, what, tell me, how, if you can, explain the tone, the overarching tone of this season that you've programmed for us. Sure. Yeah. So as, as both Susan and, and Jeremy um, alluded to, um, this was a year when we were in transition. So I think, as you know, it, over the last five or six years, we've grown increasingly more thematic in our programming and, you know, as sort of typified by this year where we had the whole track of women's work and the whole track of citizenship. And we actually took a totally different approach this year. We sort of said, we are going to do one of the most important things that an organization does, which is we're going to bring in great new vision and new leadership. And that's now embodied in, in Jeremy, who we're thrilled to have. Um, in, in order to sort of make that as much of a success and a platform for welcome that we could, um, we determined to bring together the three core constituencies that we work with the most. The first being all of the artists from around the world who are regularly on our seasons and have been with us from anywhere from 10 years to 50 years. Um, our audiences, who include all of you, um, and our media community, and also um, the campus of, of UC Berkeley, that it was deeply tied to the season. And that we'd really pull from all four corners and just create a hit parade so that every single major relationship we have has an opportunity to meet our new director and has an opportunity to really engage with new audience and to go deeply into all the things that we do really well with a little bit less pressure um, to put that sort of heavy curatorial tone on the season. So what I feel like we've succeeded in putting together, what I'm thrilled about, is that it's kind of non-stop hits when you look through this brochure, and it's opportunities for, for us to really bring all of our communities together and to celebrate that we are about to launch into a chapter of completely new vision, which is tremendously exciting. Yeah, and in fact, you talk about greatest hits. Well, you've booked a number of dance companies. That's no surprise. Uh, you've had Mark Morris coming out here for decades, Joffrey, Alvin Ailey. Um, uh, I remember that uh, I assigned Scott Schaefer, the, one of the great editors and hosts at KQED, to do a story about Mark Morris back in 1998 because Morris always seemed to be hanging around Zellerbach, even though he was an <laughs> East Coast dance creator. Um, so, but what was the secret? What is the, what's so special about seeing dance at Zellerbach Hall? I think there are a lot of secrets to that and a lot of things that are special. There may be as many things that are special about it as there are people in this room. Um, I think the, the, the short answer to that is it's, the stage is beautifully appointed for concert dance. I think all of us would agree that there's not a bad seat in Zellerbach. The seats are very close to the stage and the stage is very, very wide. It has a beautifully wide proscenium. One of the things that, that Zellerbach has uh, to offer that I think we've done very well. I mean, for any of you who've recently been in the women's bathrooms, you know that many of the fixtures are still from 1968. But um, the, the, the actual stage itself has been maintained beautifully, which is a testament to our staff and to our crew and to our, our campus. So um, artists' work on that stage can be rendered at a level that is absolutely the best in the world. 
And I think many dance companies come not only because they really get to see the dance breathe on that stage, but because the work can be rendered at every aspect of its technical and design intelligence that very few venues can offer. Yeah, so there's a room for every leap. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I was going to, I have to add that it's also a great venue, a great uh, proscenium for circus. And we've always had uh, the uh, Les Sectoires de la Main from Montreal, and I guess it's Cirque Eloise coming this year. Well, I hope uh, the the Setuat will be back. Uh, There's some well-known stars uh, this year as well. Uh, You've got uh, uh, sopranos Renee Fleming and Susan Graham, uh, who I saw together back in 2000 in De Rosen Cavalier. Graham was sensational in uh, uh, Les Troyennes at SF Opera a couple years ago. So what do you... We, with people like that, we expect great performances, but what should we be looking for? What do, what do you, as an expert on this, say, think is, is we might miss if we're not watching for it? What, what, what insight can you give us? Well, certainly with both of those singers, there's not much uh, that I can say that, that hasn't been said because they are so extraordinary and exquisite. And, of course, they're both dear friends of our community and, and very deeply invested here with us. Um, I think one of our attractions to those particular artists is, is the combination of artistry, intelligence, and the desire to place um, not just the, the material that they work with, but all the tangential and contextual thinking that goes into their design of program that actually makes it so rich for us when they're here. Um, so the, those particular focuses are great. Um, They're doing some Jake Hagee, I noticed. Who's, absolutely. Of course, a great Bay Area composer, yeah. yes. One of many who's on the season yeah. this year. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and there's some exciting debuts. So we have the big stars, we have these mm-hmm. dance companies we expect to see, but there's some great uh, uh, brand new performances. Yes. What debuts are you looking forward to? Oh, for me, the, yeah. the two that I'm the most excited about are Lahav Shani coming with uh, Rotterdam. Um, and Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra, yeah. yes. And um, thank you yeah. for that. Um, and uh, Sheikhu Kanemason as well. It's just extraordinary artists, both young artists. Lahav Shani is, I think, is he 30s, I believe, uh-huh. um, and is just a powerhouse of a conductor. Um, I also particularly love his relationship with this orchestra, and there's, there's something very special about how, how they play. There's a sparkle and an intensity what, to what they're doing. Um, in particular, I feel like sometimes the, the, that particular orchestra, sometimes the age of the player skews a little younger, um, and there's a, just an excitement of, of playing these masterworks at this incredibly high level, sort of, you know, in early and mid-career that takes on a particular shimmer. And with a conductor like Lahav Shani, it, it's all the more lustrous. It's really quite remarkable. Yeah. And Sheku, you know, famously played the Royal Wedding. Um, we can't wait to have him. Um, but the, the, the playing there is so exquisitely lyrical. He, he just goes, it's almost as if he's a singer. He, there's just no instrument involved. He just goes straight to it. Just a br- totally brilliant musician who goes just straight to the lyricism of the music that he plays. And I, I remember hearing him, you know, I, I was just, you know, researching him at one point online a while ago. And there's a, a, just a classic, a chestnut of him playing the Sasson um, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Swan. And it was just, just the most lyrical thing I'd ever heard. It was so singing and so incredible. So I think we're, we're excited to have him, and there's a reason why he is the, the rising star that he is. Well, my, my uh, feelings about uh, music and, and performance changed dramatically in the late 60s. My dad used to take me to the Newport Jazz and Folk Festival. And so for me, my heart still is always, this is one of my dad's handkerchiefs, by the way, blue and gold, though, 
for the for tonight for Cal performances. Anyway, jazz gets me excited. I'm glad to see Myra Melford, who's here in Berkeley, is curating some amazing performances. Uh, what's special about those? Sure. Uh-huh. So Myra and I had a, a conversation, I guess now over a, a year ago, where we were looking at what Cal Performances does with jazz. And one of the things that we were, were noticing as a pattern for us is that we do get into um, a venue conversation, which is that we're in Zellerbach Hall. It's 2,000 seats. There's not a lot of jazz artists on a, on a single bill that are necessarily going to enjoy that environment. Um, so we were seeing a lot of the same people, of course, and they're wonderful and, and extraordinary, but there was a whole chapter of this, of this music that we just weren't getting. Um, so we decided to, to flip the model, and we're actually going to turn Zellerbach around and put the stage, put the performances literally on the stage with the audience on the stage. So we'll turn the stage of Zellerbach Hall. Yes, it's not a bad idea. Turn the stage of Zellerbach Hall into a bit of a jazz club um, and have these really wonderful performances. And what, what Myra brings is a tremendous interest in where the line is between improvisation and composition. Um, and also where that sort of line is between what we might think of as, as more sort of, uh, you know, various concert music forms and, and what we think of as popular jazz. And they, there's, they all share a wall. They're all kind of right in there. And the series that she's put together is, is really quite brilliant in, in terms of the way that it deals with that question, the question of improvisation, the question of composition, and these really unique artists. So the evening on stage at Zellerbach is actually two sets of saxophone and piano duos in sort of a dueling duos moment um, that will just be a really exceptional night of, of effectively new music, which is, is really exciting to us. Oh, it's great. So new music and jazz. Uh, you've got some great deep dives into the music of a single composer. Uh, Jonathan Biss is going to be doing all the Beethoven sonatas. Uh, the Takash Quartet, and I hope I'm saying it right, is doing Bartok, all the Bartok string quartets. And Louis Lorty is not playing Louis Louis. He's playing Liszt. Uh, which uh, I'm par- apparently I always read and hear. I hear lists and I think I can't hear what the fingers are doing, but those are real knuckle crackers. So, uh, w- what does an audience get to do when the when the when the musicians are doing such deep dives? How does that change what the audience experiences? Well, I think when the artist is truly um, has given themselves over to this kind of a project which oftentimes is not for a year or for a season, it's for many, many years, um, you get a different level of acuity and, and interest, but also the, the audience really gets the benefit of all of those years of getting to really be with that piece. So Louis, I think, has been with uh, what, what translates to the, the year of pilgrimage, because I, I won't slaughter it in French. Um, the, um, you know... I, I prefer 30 years. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary journey that he's been with this piece. It's a, to perform that work is it's a, almost a three-hour experience. Um, it was composed over much of his life. Um, it really does give the entire picture of what Liszt uh, was as a composer and, and how he grew and evolved in his interests from what we know to be, as you called, the knuckle cracker, which mm-hmm. was this incredible virtuosity for which he's famous, but also in the later years, this really deep, late romantic, harmonic, um, exploration that that really made him, you know, uh, the stalwart that he's he's remained. So, 
that kind of an exploration can't come from a year of practicing in peace, right? It comes from a lifetime. And the same thing with the Takash, who are, um, you know, another Hungarian composer with the Bartok. Right. Um, you're, you're looking at a level of investigation and a depth of understanding that very, very few, um, you know, ensembles or individuals could, could manifest in the way that these, these people will. It's in their blood. I think you, you said that to me yeah. once, yes. Well, certainly with Jonathan, too. This was maybe four years ago... He was with us at a home concert and played the Waldstein Sonata. And I will just never forget that moment. We were sitting in an incredible home and with gorgeous piano. And um, out he came with the Waldstein. And it was in that moment that I first thought about what would happen if we did something like this with him. That the, the depth of his emergence as a Beethoven interpreter was instantly clear. And um, I think some of you may have been at that event. Um, but it was, it was unforgettable, and I think that it's led us to this, to this moment with him, which is, again, many years in the making. Okay. Uh, the most exciting, perhaps the most ambitious collaboration this year is the one you're planning with Stanford Live to revive uh, Tremonitia, which is Scott Joplin's ragtime opera, rarely performed, and uh, I've been watching videos uh, online uh, the last few days to prepare for this, uh, featuring Nima Bickersteth, who was here last year with Jordi Savali. Am I, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, she's just an extraordinary singer. She's working with this theater company called Volcano. Uh, so tell me about this collaboration, this very ambitious project, and why it's an important uh, moment to revive uh, Scott Joplin's opera. Sure. Yeah. So, the piece, I think, was just revived once, I think, in the 70s, and it's been a while since we've <laughs> seen it since then. It was, I think, not performed, actually, in, in, in Joplin's lifetime. Right. Um, he threw, they threw out the orchestrations. They were lost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, there's a whole lot of rebuilding to get this thing to happen. Um, what I can say about it, in, in terms of your first, or the, the question about why now... Um, it's an extraordinary composition that deserves close attention, and particularly because Scott Joplin really is powerfully situated, particularly with that work, as an African-American classical composer working in a variety of, of forms. And, and it's, it's important to see him in that light and to hold him, hold him up in that light and all the things that are kind of maybe have been erased around that. I think it's an incredibly important gesture. The story is actually is a folktale, basically. Um, but the, in, interestingly, even in its time, the, the protagonist is, is a woman who um, is, you know, becomes a powerful figure um, through literacy. So part of the story here is that we're in, in Reconstruction South um, and that this freed slave has been taught to read and becomes a powerful figure through literacy. You can imagine how much that story to, an, to today's audience needs a retouch. Um, but the essence of what that meant at that moment and where there was a story of empowerment and a story that really does have its moment right now, particularly around those issues, um, I think it's, it's timely. So we're, we're excited to see it. This is, this is um, a beautiful project with Stanford that we're, that we're sharing, and we're, it's, it's really their project that they've been developing for quite some time, and we're enjoying the benefit of that relationship. Right, there'll be a few performances here and then some, I believe, at Bing Hall. Is that right? Yeah. And, and uh, I wanted to ask about this. This has always puzzled me. Uh, you know, I, I live closer to the Mondavi Center than to Cal Performances, and, uh, and that's, they're kind of on the same circuit, the Green Music Center, some places in Southern California, of course. 
uh, and around the country. How do you work with these other major presenters? Uh, competitive, collaborative? In this case of Stanford Live, of course, it's collaborative. But you must sometimes be fighting for the same artist, right? Oh, it's all of the above. <laughs> it's all of the above. The good news is all of us are collaborative. We're friendly with each other. We're collegial with each other, except when we're very upset um, about someone getting something we wanted and we didn't... Um, Basically, the, the, the short answer is there are artists who can play the Bay Area and Northern California every day of every week and always really just knock it out of the park no matter how many times they're here. And there are some where you really need to focus exclusively on how to situate them in community because they are perfect for your community. They are specific to your need to serve. Um, that is unique to your constituency. So where we have people who really do just go on a tour, frankly, we have to have critical mass. Otherwise, that artist is just not going to come to the region. Um, where we have the desire to work deeply and in residency with someone that is specific to, to our own, you know, as, as Stanford really is with Trimanisha, frankly, um, then it's a different story. And I think we, we need to think differently about that. And, and for us, really, it's, it's our dance season that, that is sitting in that particular jewel right. box. Right, because uni- we're unique in producing all these dance series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, besides Melford, you're going to have some other Bay Area artists, uh, Sam Green and Sam Adams, Mason Bates, Rebecca Solnit. She and I are graduates of the same uh, college. Uh, I guess this is proof that the grass can be greener in our own backyard. Often performers don't get any glory at home and they have to go somewhere else. Uh, Tell me about what you were thinking as you gathered these Bay Area artists together uh, on the program. And let's not forget Pamela Z as well, who's on the program with uh, with, uh, Ace Blackbird. Um, The more we think about it, the more we'll find, I'm sure. It's like an Easter egg hunt. Um, The... I think the most important thing that you're suggesting here is one of the the three things I started with, that we really wanted to pull together three core communities, our artists, our audience, and our immediate Berkeley-ness, our Berkeley-tude. And it was really important to us to to call that out, to name it, and to to bring it forward, that the artists who live and work in your community um, are the reason that international work comes here in the first place. You know, without an incredibly rich landscape of people who are creating constantly the cultural drive and the interest and the excitement in each of us, even in perhaps less glamorous ways when at home, um, we, we would have no context, no place in which to, to, to land these remarkable gifts from around the world. So it really is critical to honor these people who are right here in our backyard and who are exceptional, um, Mason's work is performed everywhere. Pamela's work is performed everywhere. And yes, it's a little trickier here. Um, but that's, you know, it's, it, it's really been a very intentional thing about creating a sense of home with this season and creating a sense of, of people coming together for this very specific purpose. Yeah. I think we need to leave some time here now for questions from the audience. Okay. Hi, guys. I was curious um, if you would help us navigate through the world stage. I see some new names, Rob, things that we're not familiar with, and I was hoping that you could help us get to decide some of the things that we can't miss this year. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm going to get there myself. 
Um, well, I noticed this is Bollywood uh, uh, evening, right. right? That looked like a lot of fun. So yeah. there, there's a number of things here that, that have fallen into this mix. There's a couple things that you may not recognize. There's a couple things that you might. So kind of uh, not to pick a favorite among all of my children in this case, but um, this is a very special moment for the company Sankaijuku, um, who many of you may know. Um, they've uh, certainly been a presence in the Bay Area, both with Cal performances and with San Francisco performances and Yerba Buena Center for the Performing Arts. Um, for, for many years. So they're, they're certainly you know, one of the world's leading buto companies. This is um, their great director, uh, Amagatsu's last piece. Meguri will be his last piece. Um, so this is the time to see them. It's, this cannot be missed because it will never come again. Um, there is also um, Halao Okekui, who arguably one of the best uh, traditional halaos from Hawaii that for, if any of you follow the, the halaos that perform regularly here in, in the Bay Area, like Naili Hulu Ikawekiu, um, this is the company they look up to. This is the company that sets the, the standard of the, the, main, the sort of care and, and um, forwarding of this cultural practice. They're exquisite. Um, it will be um, an interestingly spare and absolutely gorgeous show, um, show to see. And they're, they're new to us. Um, I also would point out to you in this mix um, nozzle brass. So we were talking about nozzle brass earlier today, um, and I said it's a little like the Canadian brass got together with Victor Borga and went to the circus. <laughs> it's extraordinarily funny. It's great, and they're incredibly high-level musicianship there, but it really is, uh, again, that's a, that's a new... Um, you know, a, a new new group to to see, um, and quite wonderful. And there's there's some you know some some folks that you'll recognize from years past. Of course, the Peking Acrobats are back. Um, but those are the three I would point out as not to miss, who you might not know. And I should just say the Chieftains were amazing when I saw them years ago. My wife dragged me to that, and I thought, oh, I'm not so sure I'm going to like this. And they were. They're just phenomenal musicians. They surprise you at every turn. It's not just jigs. There's a question back there. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Rob. Um, so I see that uh, family performances are back in the spotlight with the whole separate section. So that's great that there's a section. I've got a 15-year-old. Um, could you pull out a couple of additional performances, maybe? That's what I'd like to know. That might be good for those of us who are trying to you know, bring our kids into the arts. Um, besides the standards, are, is there anything else in the program this season that you think a, you know, a tween or an adolescent could wow. relate to that we might not think of? Can you pitch me a genre, or can I pick anything well, I want? Well, you know, dance for me. But dance or theater, and then, uh, well, early music. But yeah. Dance and theater. It's a fifteen-year-old interested in early music. Yes. Yeah, well, that, that might be her mom. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, I would direct you towards Milos, uh, towards his guitar recital, which I think is, uh, well, it's, it's actually, and friends. So there's more to it than that. But there's a fantastic mix of popular and classical music on that. There's a, a level of, of virtuosity there, and there's just a smartness to the programming that is very accessible and very, very, very high caliber. Um, I might throw you in, in, in that direction. Let me just also think about if there's anything else that I haven't already... Oh, Dorrance, dance. Oh. 
tap dance. The tap. Incredible show. Um, also, really, it's, it's in the Playhouse, so it's, it's a little bit less daunting, you know? Um, but the show also, it's, it's, it's beautifully lit and beautifully constructed, even though it's a sort of a smaller production. There's a whole, whole section of that show that's just, um, just from the knees down. That's you know, all you get. Um, but there's a, a wonderful sense of musicianship and sort of the collaboration between um, thinking as a rhythmic improviser and thinking as a musical improviser in a really beautifully staged setting that's totally uh, available to, to anyone. It's, I think it's a, a, another great opportunity. Go ahead. Hello. Hi. Um, Rob, I noticed there's a new section called Vocal Celebration. Yep. And um, I don't know much about the most of the groups um, that you programmed in this section. Absolutely. Um, maybe you can give us a little overview and tell us your thinking behind this grouping. And is this, this going to be a grouping in the future as well? It could be. Um, we've actually done a couple of these um, and called them different things. We did one uh, a couple years ago that was called The Human Voice, and I think we were just not specific enough when we said The Human Voice um, exactly what we were talking about. Um, so the vocal celebration, um, this, this was somewhat a response to the presence of, of Scott Joplin and the entry Manisha on the season. Um, that we kind of wanted to build a fair amount of context among um, African-American vocal traditions that are also sort of part of this season. So the two that are new in this context are um, the wonderful Damien Sneed, um, which is the Martin Luther King celebration. Um, Damien Sneed you, you, is one of these people who's been kind of out of the spotlight, but, but making everything happen for musicians for years. Um, he's worked with everybody, I, I, I think, from Wynton Marsalis to Diana Ross. He's just one of those ubiquitously, immensely talented musicians. He's put together a, um, a celebration of the music that, and the musical practices that supported Dr. King. Um, that also includes in, you know, all of, you know, a, lot of, a lot of footage and, and you know, materials. Um, that make it sort of a theatrical event. Um, it's just an amazing, amazing show. I, I, we do not have this confirmed, but I'm very hopeful that the um, uh, Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir will accept our invitation to perform with them. That is um, extended but not accepted. Um, so that's in the cone of silence. But um, that's, that's the feeling of that show. Similarly, um, Trey McLaughlin and, and the Sounds of, of Zamar... Um, it's a wonderful gospel choir that does a lot of contemporary music inside of their gospel practice. Um, but, you know, they, they, are, they started off as a YouTube sensation. So, you know, they, they I think, have over a million hits on YouTube um, and have come to the world that way. So their live performances take on um, sort of a different, um, you know, sort of a, a different audience, shall we say. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of thought here. And, of course, Afropop Spectacular is back. So... Here we were really trying to build context, and that was the, the, the thinking around putting it together. But these are, these are really all, I, I think, quite wonderful and quite unique. I'm just disappointed in the lack of theater. I look at the listing, there's three, and to me it only seems like one and a half. Obviously the one you mentioned, the Volcano Theater Company. And, uh, I mean, over the years, uh, Cal Performances has prevented presented such great theater, the Theater of Galway, French Theater, um, and, and others, and even the 
Eiffman Ballet, which is coming up, the Pygmalion, feels like theater. I appreciate that, and um, I will tell you, it is, it is no uh, easy feat. Um, in a year when some things are touring and some things are not, um, to get your hands on exactly uh, what, what you would like to see. I, I personally was really missing Teatro de la Ville this year, various others, and I, I can assure you our relationships with them are strong, and I hope along with you that they will be back again soon. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. What's the longest time it took you to secure one of these groups? In other words, did you start talking last year, two years, three years? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> I... Um, I'm glad you asked this question. I think that uh, the answer to that is probably um, Pina Bausch, uh, uh, Dancia de Vuportal, coming with Palermo, Palermo. Um, because the company simply won't, won't come just because you ask, right? They'll, they're only going to come under exactly the right conditions. Um, and also because um, they went through the, the very tragic loss of, of, of Pina and uh, have needed time to figure out how they were going to honor her legacy and how they were going to commit to bringing, bringing the works back to the world. Um, on tour, I should say. So um, that was probably two to three years in the making. Um, I actually spoke with the company when I, for when I first started, um, you know, six years ago. Um, and uh, it was right, on the, uh, <laughs> right in the beginning of their transition. Um, so it's, it's been many years getting that to happen. I'm thrilled that they're coming. If you haven't, if you don't remember Palermo, Palermo, or haven't seen it, um, it's, it's her ode to Sicily. Um, and it is, it's pure pina. It's just one of her masterworks, an extraordinary piece. And we, we will be the, the one place you can see that, um, you know, really outside of, well, they're stopping at the music center too, but it's, it's a very, there's just three stops on that tour of which we are very honored to be one. Rob, uh, thank you very much. I think we're done. Thank you very much for listening.